Welcome to the Health Trip Podcast. My name is Jill Foos. I'm a functional medicine and integrative nutrition health coach. I created this podcast to bring you along as we travel down intriguing science-packed roads, debunking old medical paradigms and perusing new innovative therapies and modalities with the finest functional medicine doctors, practitioners, and like-minded biohackers while living our best life. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode on the Health Trip Podcast. Menopause and fat loss, will they ever be friends? Most of the women that I've had the honor of working with list weight loss as one of their top three main health goals. Search up fat loss and menopause on PubMed and you will see a ton of information. Women are not small men and the art of fat loss for menopausal and postmenopausal women can be very challenging. Hormonal changes, especially with the decline in estrogen and testosterone levels as women transition, may lead to a slower metabolism, loss of lean muscle mass, increased visceral fat, a decrease in bone mineral density, increased anxiety, poor sleep, and loss of overall strength. This is serious business. Sarcopenia or muscle wasting is a disease of the elderly and now being seen in much younger populations. Think of your great grandparent or a grandparent withering away in front of your eyes, but in younger people. There are plenty of reasons to optimize your health during this time in your life by losing fat and building lean muscle mass. For one, your kids are most likely out of the house, giving you more freedom to do the things you want to do. Obesity opens the door to the four horsemen of chronic disease states, Alzheimer's, cancer, cardiovascular disease risk, and type 2 diabetes. Getting excess body fat off of your body is part of your longevity plan. I'm 55 years old, in menopause, and have lived a very active, healthy lifestyle for decades. I have a solid foundation, and even I am starting to see and feel how much harder it is for me to maintain my strength and my lean muscle mass. So what's the magic to fat loss for midlife women? I've invited a very special guest on to today's episode to help sort through a lot of the fat loss noise out there. Dr. Bill Campbell is a professor of exercise science and director of the Performance and Physique Enhancement Laboratory at the University of South Florida. He is the creator of Body by Science, a comprehensive research review summarizing the latest and best research related to building muscle and losing body fat. His research focuses on physique enhancement within a maintainable lifestyle. His pioneering research includes dietary protein intake, rapid fat loss, and diet breaks for physique athletes and bodybuilders. Dr. Campbell has authored three books on sports nutrition, is the author of over 200 scientific abstracts and manuscripts on topics related to sports nutrition, physique enhancement, and exercise performance, and is the past president of the International Society of Sports Nutrition and a legal expert consultant for dietary supplement industry. And here is the podcast medical disclaimer. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical advice or for making any lifestyle changes to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any of my guests on my podcast. So sit back and open your minds and let's dive into fat loss and midlife women. 
Hi, Bill. Welcome to the Health Trip Podcast. I am so happy to have you here today. Yes, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So before we dive in, I wanted to find out what led you to study obesity and fat loss the way that you do. You're really hyper-focused on, on this area of nutrition and, and uh, lifestyle. Yeah, I'd say there's probably two things as I reflect on what, what probably brought me into this. Uh, the first is, and they're, they're both on opposite ends of the spectrum. So the one is I really loved bodybuilding when, when I was younger, still appreciate it now. So this, this idea of getting is very low body fat on the human body and still be functional as possible. And then the other end is just growing up with a family that's mostly obese. So growing up yeah. parents obese, um, when I, I've been obese in my life, at least by BMI standards, uh, when I was a baby, I was like 99th or 100th percentile for my body weight, such that the doctors, you know, told my mom, hey, we have to change the diet. Otherwise, you know, this, this isn't going to turn out well. So in just growing up in that environment just made me probably aware. And then also just being on the, the, I also do a lot of performance-based research. So also saying, hey, it's not just about fat loss, but also can we perform well on, on this? And then what and another thing that kind of loops everything together is always resistance training. I'm I I that, yeah. that's kind of a, a a the thread that pulls it together on both ends of the spectrum. Yeah, I love that because I have five kids and they're all in their twenties and they're all very athletic and I I was very athletic as well and I'm still you know at fifty five in pretty good shape and weight training has always been something that all of us have really enjoyed and we had our kids start early on and understand that it's, it's not a punishment. It's a reward to go weight training. Yeah. It's a blessing. It's, it's yeah. a, absolutely to have your body be able to do all of that for you and to maintain your physique and look good and feel good and do all the things that you want to do. It's, you know, a lot of people struggle with wrapping their mind around weight training. So that's well, I'm sure we're going to dive a little bit deeper into that as well. But I do want to talk about something that comes up quite a bit for me in terms of health coaching is the word diet. When I think of the word diet, when I use the word diet, I have to be very careful with my clients because they think it's going on a diet, whatever that means. It's the keto, whatever it is for them, fat loss. To me, diet just encompasses what we're eating, not the fat. Is that how you consider the word diet as well. I think it depends on the context. So the way that you use the word is the intended, the appropriate word. It, 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 it should not imply like restriction or fat loss. It's just literally, like you said, there's, there's, you know, there's, there's the diet of the Canadians. There's the diet that, that, that school children eat. So diet, just like you said, it, it's a word that describes the typical or common food intakes of a given population. But I appreciate that a lot of people just like you will interpret that differently. So kind of like what we're doing now, I think it's important to just to have an understanding. What do we mean when we say this? So um, yeah, and, and I'll tend, I tend to not, not, I tend to adapt to the audience that I'm that I'm with at the time, or if I'm uh, I don't really have clients, so 
but yeah, it's, it's tricky. It's, it's, it's nuance, nuance for sure. Because a lot of people use the word diet and they think negative pain, punishment, like I'm not, I'm going to be hungry. You know, for me, it's just, this is my diet. This is my lifestyle and my diet is part of my lifestyle. So I'm glad we cleared that up, but I want to shift to the, um, to midlife women, because that's mostly who I work with. And during midlife, and I'm in it myself, we go through menopause and it gets harder and harder to lose that fat and gain muscle mass. And so we do know that the loss of estrogen and testosterone as we're transitioning through this period definitely has those effects on our physique, on our body, on our ability to lose fat. Um, But what do you see as some of the top reasons why midlife women struggle to lose fat? Well, I I have a an answer to this and I'm, I'm married to the, this population. So I, I've, I've really appreciated. And one of the things that I've, that I've experienced with multiple conversations with women and have seen this is the associated lack of energy. So it becomes much more laborious to just go do the workouts that used to be normal, like, Oh, no problem. And what right. used to be no problem is now it's it's literally like a small mountain to to do to to get to to do that um so that's one thing i've noticed and when i'm asked well how do we solve that and i i don't that's where i i don't know i'm not in that it's not my area of expertise but i do think a lot of people fail to appreciate it's not as simple as just exercising we it's almost like you have to have a strategy to get you to the point where you can exercise at least through that transition period so I know my, my again my I've seen it through my wife and I've seen it with with other women that I've communicated with. Um, one thing I would add to that too, that makes things as easy as possible is a game plan going into midlife or yep. planning to have or having these habits established. So the correct dietary intake strategies, an appropriate exercise program, which ideally would include res- include resistance exercise. Those things set you up such that you don't get, I always say like, you don't get punched in the mouth as hard if you've already have these things established in your life and you've already built up some, some lean tissue going into this. I would agree with that. You know, having more of a preventative outlook starting in your twenties and thirties. And again, making this just part of your lifestyle. So when you get to that point in in the road, it's not going to be as difficult. I mean, I can tell you that uh, I weight train four or five days a week, and it is harder and harder for me to build that lean muscle mass. I get in there and I cannot believe how much it takes for me. And I'm optimizing all the things. So when I work with women who are just starting this transition, or maybe they're post-menopause, and this hasn't been part of their lifestyle, it's a, it's a big struggle. And so where do you think the best place at that point is to start? Is it looking at the nutrition? Is it as simple as calories in, calories out? Well, it, for, for calories in, are we talking about trying to prevent the fat gain, or are we talking about uh, trying to build up as lean, as much lean mass as possible or both? A little of both, but I would say one of the biggest complaints my midlife women come to me with is weight gain. So they're already gained weight. They've already put on 10, 15, sometimes 75 pounds. 
and they don't have that lifestyle in place. So is it as simple as first starting with energy in, energy out, or is it doing both things simultaneously, working on the nutrition and working on the exercise routine? Yeah, let's let's start with the nutrition aspect of this. And, and I'm going to say what, what works in, in, in there's a, a scientific consensus in the literature about what I'm going to say. And I also want to say that doesn't, I don't mean to minimize the hormonal changes and the struggles that women are having where it's like, oh, it's just, you say that, but it's not that simple. So I'm going to speak to what we know works. And then we're going to appreciate there are, I'm going to use the word nuance. There are nuances again with peri and menopausal situations that, that, will impact this or maybe not make it as as easy as one plus one equals two. So in terms of calories in and calories out for fat loss or for preventing fat gain, yes, it, it is that simple with a caveat of protein. So protein is very unique. And, and I'll say this, um, with a standard amount of protein, meaning that you're not changing your protein intake, if you reduce your calories, you will lose body fat If uh, as long as your calories are beneath what you're expending in a day. If you increase your calories above what you're spending in a day, you will, also, you will gain body fat. Now, I, I always like to make sure I put conditions. That's assuming that you don't have any metabolic disease or health problems, um, or again, just let's just say any disease states that would kind of alter this normal physiological response. So calories in, calories out. And, and I, I, I would phrase it like this. I would, some people will argue that. And I don't think they're arguing that. They're arguing an adherence issue, like calories in, calories out doesn't work because people still are overweight or that doesn't work for these people. And the answer to that is, well, they weren't able to adhere to a caloric deficit for that mm. period of time, or even a maintenance intake such that they were over time overeating. And that's real. Nobody's going to deny that. But the the statements that that I see sometimes to say it doesn't work, that's that's not true. And the evidence to that is I, I would encourage somebody out of the maybe hundreds of thousands, minimum of tens of thousands of weight loss studies, you won't really find one where a diet was imposed and the the outcome was fat loss. You, you just won't find it. Again, it's studied over and over. Now, that's not to say that there are individuals that that um, struggle with, uh, that won't lose much body fat. So you could put two different people on the same caloric deficit. One may lose nine pounds, one may lose one pound. That's, that is the reality. Research is, is averages. But physiologically, calories in calories out it it that it, that is i would say fact and then i did mention this idea of protein so protein is unique so i'll um i'll explain this if you increase your calories from only protein so let's say you're going to just have i'll just use egg whites because that's that's pure almost pure protein and you have an extra 200 calories a day from egg whites I would suggest that you probably will not gain body fat. Um, several studies have reported that not from egg whites, but mainly from supplemental protein. Um, but if you were to have those 200 calories, let's say from a processed snack or from uh, you know, a higher fat food or for, from carbs or fat, you would gain body weight. So there's something unique and special about protein 
that it 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 doesn't make calories in and calories out as simple. Um, and and let me suggest. Well, I, let me have you reflect on that if you have any follow up questions. I would say that. 98% of the women that I work with in mid the midlife um, population are drastically under eating protein and they are overweight by at least 20 to 75 pounds. So that makes a lot of sense to me. And we often start on protein goals. And I have to tell you, when I talk about protein with them, most of them just cringe. They, they don't understand the logic behind eating more protein. And is that safe? Is that good for them? They're so out of touch with the, the functions of eating protein, optimal amounts of protein in terms of our, our body, what our body needs. Um, so it's, it's a hard conversation, but it's where I start. Yeah. And, and again, I'm not a professional like you where I'm working with clients, but I, I would almost take the stance. I would show them a picture of an elderly woman with frailty, with clear sarcopenia, say yep. this, th what we see here is unfortunate, but completely preventable. And the easiest thing, there's two things we can do to, to prevent this, but one of the easiest thing is just what you said, just eat more protein. So that's a negative, like you're not having them strive. That's more of a fear tactic in, do you want this? Because you're, yes, you're overweight, so you're not frail, but sarcopenia is likely happening to you now. And this could be your, your end. And um, they call that um, normal weight obesity. Uh -huh. um, and one of the studies I reviewed this in, in my research review, maybe two months ago, they took over um, normal weight obese females. And what does that mean? It means they were not obese, but they had a lot more body fat and a lot less lean mass than average. So while they didn't have a BMI that would that would classify them as obese, they did. They had less lean tissue and more body fat than a typical female would have. And I think these were, I don't remember if they were middle-aged. I think they were younger. And the only thing the researchers did was they just increased protein. That's the only thing they did. And they gained a significant amount of lean tissue and they actually lost a significant amount of body fat. Now, I'm not talking 30 pounds of, of fat loss, mm -hmm. but... Um, several pounds of reduced fat, several pounds of, of improved lean tissue. And to me, that's the lowest hanging fruit we can do. Yeah. Um, and what, and what actually what they did was they replaced some carbs for the protein. So they weren't dieting. They had the same number of calories. They just added protein. And I believe they just naturally reduced their carbohydrates. And that alone was enough to favorably improve their body composition. And that's without any exercise. And I would also say that's not the only, I'm, I'm mentioning that one study. There are several studies in women, uh, and I always say in humans, because I don't rely on, on rodent mm -hmm. literature, that report the same thing. So yeah, it's, it, it's and, and I, I'd be curious, why do you think, why is that the, the negative, why do you think you're getting, or why, why, why is that mindset ingrained at like a? That's a great question. And I've asked them. And a lot of them report that they are uncomfortable with the full feeling, right? Because protein is very satiating. And when you're eating optimal amounts of protein, which we can talk about, 
it is a very satiating full feeling, but that's a good feeling, right? It's not, it's not the full feeling you get after a Thanksgiving dinner with all the carbs and you need to go lay on the couch and just pass out. It's a satiating feeling. You hopefully get the signal to your brain to turn off that hunger signal. So you avoid that leptin resistance as you lose fat and gain lean muscle. And I think they're just not used to it and they don't like the feeling of being full. I would say that's the number one reason. Okay. Yeah. And protein does, does have that effect. Um, and I would say though, as much as I always tout that benefit of protein, there are some studies that say that it's not any more satiating. Um, those aren't the majority, but not everybody's going to have that, that, that same feeling of, of fullness. Um, and one thing I would just, as it, as it, as it came to me, there's protein supplements, so whey protein in particular, which is pre a pretty light protein. It's fast digesting. That tends to have a very minimal of impact on the feeling of fullness or satiation. And just you know, one scoop of whey protein is about 25 grams. So that might be a way to just counter that argument. Hey, would you be willing to do this? Yeah, and because we don't, you know. Um, but then again, I understand a lot of people. To me supplements are just part of my lifestyle. It's, it's a, it's a new habit for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. I love protein smoothies, not for myself. I don't drink them, but for my clients who we need to get in somewhere around 25, 30 more grams of protein, it's an easy fix. It's an easy solution. They like the act of drinking and, and, um, they don't have that, that fullness, like you were talking about. However, when you drink your calories, you also miss a lot of physiological, um, processes that go on in your body. Like you don't have that hunger signal shut down as well as when you're chewing your food and eating your food. So it doesn't work for everybody. It doesn't work for me because of that reason. Um, yes. But I do think it's a great, I also love, you know, having them mix the protein powder in yogurt, whether it's a dairy-free yogurt or one that's um, full of dairy, right? That's another way it creates like a pudding consistency, throw in some berries. It's a really good small snack to have when you're getting in at 20 to 25 grams of protein. The whey protein, we don't, I, I can't use that for everybody, obviously, but it is a great source. Uh, sometimes we have to rely on egg white protein or grass-fed uh, beef protein just for food intolerance issues. Yes. Yep. But, but yeah, it's a great um it's a great substitute to get in more protein. But I wanna talk about how much protein is ideal for people. How do we figure that out? And I wanna kind of circle back to resting metabolic rate or basal metabolic rate, and really how to figure out and capture this entire equation of how to set someone up for success when they're trying to figure out, well, how do I get into a caloric deficit if I have a lot of fat to lose? And what is that? How do I figure all these numbers out? And then how do I prioritize that protein? Yeah, I, I, I'll present two options. I'll call one the quick way and one the, the long way or what I would call the better way. Um, so the quick way is to estimate your resting metabolic rate or your resting energy expenditure. And you can do that. You put in your sex, your age, and your weight into an online calculator. Mm -hmm. And it will estimate your resting metabolic rate. So that's, and let's define what that is. That's how many calories you burn at rest. So if you were to do nothing but lay on lay in bed all day for 24 hours, how many calories would your body burn 
and those calories are used to keep you alive, just to keep normal physiological functions going. So it's a, it's a, it's not many calories. There's no exercise. There's no walking. There's no digestion of food. It's just the the least amount of calories that you would burn in a day to keep your to keep you alive. And we call that resting okay. energy expenditure, resting metabolic rate. Once you have that number, let's just say it's uh, 1,200 for a given female. What you do next is you multiply that by an activity factor. And if this person is sedentary, so they do no purposeful exercise, uh, use the elevators more often, not park close to the store. So we would multiply that by 1.2. So 1200 times 1.2, whatever that comes out to, that's around, I don't know, 1400 calories. Um, that would be the amount of calories that we would estimate would be their main tenants level. So anything beneath, let's just say that again, that activity factor took them to 1400 calories. If they ate less than that, they would lose body weight. If they ate more than that, they would gain body weight. If they are extremely active, so exercising, cardio, resistance exercise, going for walks, you, you may multiply that by up to, up to 1.8 or two times your calculated or estimated resting energy expenditure. Uh, for most people like myself, I'm moderately active. I exercise, I walk every day, most days, resistance train three to four. That's You would multiply that by 1.55 around there. So you can see, you just estimate your resting energy expenditure and do a simple multi um, activity factor. And that allows you to get a ballpark of what your resting or what your maintenance calories maintenance. are. That's the quick way. And I don't like that way because one, it's not very specific to you. You're estimating your resting energy expenditure with a formula and you're giving an around about activity factor. Now it will be close but it's not tailored to you. So what I prefer, and this is what we do in, in my research lab when, when we do weight loss studies, we invest in tailoring the maintenance calorie calculation to the individual with added education. Now, this is not as quick and it's definitely not as easy, but what we have our subjects do or what I encourage people to do is you, tr you track two things for at least two weeks. You track everything you eat. So you have to know everything that's going into your body that has calories. And you're going to also every day track your body weight. So you're tracking how many calories in and what your body weight is. And let's say at the end of the two weeks, what you do is you split that into two one-week periods. So the first seven days and the second seven days. And you take an average of all of your calories because sometimes most people will eat more calories on the weekend. So we factor that in as an average. You also look at your body weight. And over those two weeks, if your body weight went up by one or two pounds, you were the, the calories that you averaged were probably more than what you need and you were in a caloric surplus. Mm -hmm. Or if you lost weight, let's say two pounds or more, you were likely in a caloric deficit. So you weren't eating enough calories to fuel your normal activities. Mm -hmm. So the reason I like that is it's your calories specific to you. And it already factors in all of your activities. How much did you exercise? How much did you walk? How sedentary were you? So there's no estimating on that stuff. Everything's tailored to you. Now, again, the first method you can do in about five mm -hmm. minutes. The second method, yeah. I'm saying two weeks. And I would even suggest doing longer because if you're younger and you're female and you have menstrual cycle, that, that may be, that's 
that tends to tick up or down depending on the, the time of the month. But again, two weeks worth of data does average all that out. I could see the second method being really difficult, especially for women, um, because not all women are very honest with themselves about what they eat and what they track. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's and a lot of variability in there. And then you have to add in the alcohol and perhaps they had three glasses of wine and they're only really recognizing one. So I, I could see the first one being a lot easier for people. Um, and by the way, for anyone listening, the calculator's online and there's a whole bunch of different calculators to use. You can, they, they have it where it's already built in. You pick out your exercise level. They have it you know, described and it does the calculation for you. So basically you find out what your resting metabolic rate is you add, you multiply in online your exercise that comes out to your maintenance number. Now, I have a question. So you have to eat under your maintenance number of calories in order to be in a caloric deficit, but you don't ever really want to go below your resting metabolic caloric amount, correct? It, it depends on the individual. So do they have a if, if let's just say there's morbid obesity and there's health problems with the excess adiposity, there are there may be situations where you would want to do that. But in general, what you're saying is correct. If you, if you are going, if your calories are too low, thou now when you embrace that and you are eating too few calories, what happens is when you lose body weight, which you will, you lose a lot of lean tissue and not just body fat. And that has actually sets on a cascade of actions, which really works against you for future fat loss. And what a lot of people fail to appreciate is when your diet is over, when, you're, when you've reached your goal weight, but if you were too aggressive, now when your diet is over, you have increased the likelihood of, of obtaining something called fat overshoot. And that is where your body will fairly rapidly increase body fat because of you overeating when your diet is over. And the best hypothesis that I've seen in the scientific literature is the way that you prevent that from happening is to prevent the loss of muscle when you're dieting. So if you're, let me just, I'll say this again. If you're losing weight too rapidly with crash dieting, extreme caloric deficits, you lose muscle mass. When your diet is over, that, that's associated with a suppressed metabolism. And as soon as you start increasing your food, which you would naturally do, your diet is now over, your body will preferentially store those extra calories as body fat. And in some cases, within a short period of time, you have more body fat accumulated than what you had uh -huh. before you started dieting. So how do you prevent that? Well, two things when dieting. Um, eat enough protein, one, and resistance train. Both of those things will protect your lean tissue and mm -hmm. prevents this fat overshoot phenomenon. Yep, that's that's really interesting. I actually heard you talk about that in the lecture and I'm really glad that you brought that up here because I think a lot of women really need to hear that. That what, how to come back from that, that diet where they were eating possibly under a thousand calories 
and to always maintain that weight resistant training, which a lot of women don't like. So that's really hard to keep them moving in that direction. And then prioritizing the protein the entire time. My, what I say to my clients is protein. Once we figure out your amount of protein, it is non-negotiable, non-negotiable from here on out. That is a must every single day. And then we use the carbs and the fat as levers to figure out where the additional calories come in and, and, you know, how to keep this attainable as a lifestyle. Yeah, that's very similar to what, what I would call my, my approach, which is a flexible dieting, protein anchored, flexible dieting approach. You, you kind of set the, the, the core of your nutritional strategy around protein and then adjust carbs and fat based on preferences and, and fueling needs. So let's talk about how much is, how much protein is ideal for a midlife woman when two scenarios, one is a woman like myself, I'm at my goal weight. I'm just looking to maintain what I, so I weigh 120. I use one gram of protein per pound of weight. So 120 grams of protein a day. And sometimes I usually go up to hundred somewhere between 120 to 140 grams a day because I exercise so much. Would you agree on that? Yes, I, I would agree. However, I, I would, I would want to give a little context. Um, that's ideal. Um, if, if, if somebody can get a gram per pound, they're getting all of the, I would say they're nearly maximizing all of these positive adaptations. But if somebody's starting with, let's say, one of the clients that that you were discussing earlier, they eat so little protein, I would not have them feel I, it, for somebody that's eating a just a small amount of protein. The goal is more. So let's just say this client, same as you, they're 120 pounds, but they're currently eating 60 grams of protein. Yeah. Ideally, they would get to 120 grams of protein. That would be right. ideal. But they're struggling. They they. They're starting to just not like, like they're looking, they're not looking forward to the, this high protein volume food. Uh, they don't want to do supplements. So I would say, okay, you're eating 60. If we went to 80, can, can we just get you to 80? Would you, could you do that in a way that wouldn't bring a lot of excess anxiety to your dietary life? And if yep. the answer is yes, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm a successful coach and mentor because I got them to do more than what they would otherwise do without me. And they're going to get a lot of benefit from going to 60 to 80. They get a lot yeah. of benefit going 60 to hundred, but the, the, the best benefits are the initial increase. So in fact, in your case and in mine, as we get closer and closer to one gram per pound of body weight, the benefits are still there, but they get less and less and less. So at a gram per pound, that's a lot of protein. And I'll, I'll end with another statement. The leanest, if, if a female's goal is to be lean, where they can actually seize like the, the, some of the, the muscle uh, separation, the leanest females in, in, that I've seen, and again, this is my research area, so I, I see a lot of this, um, they're always the females that eat a lot of protein. They're, there's it, a high protein diet helps favor a lean body, uh, a lean physique or a, a lower body fat percentage. 
Yeah, I love that you mentioned starting off really small with these baby steps. It's exactly how health coaches approach working with their clients. We meet them where they're at and we create small steps. The goal might be one gram of protein per pound of body weight, but that's certainly not gonna happen overnight. So we think about strategies and one of those strategies is perhaps putting protein powder in a cup of yogurt, making that pudding or a, a smoothie during the day. So I love that you uh, recognize that it's really hard for people to increase their protein. Um, what about that person who's 190 pounds and their goal weight is you know, 140? Should they use the 190 pound as their starting point for that one gram of protein per pound, or should they use the ideal body weight? Uh, in my opinion, is they would use their ideal body weight. If if yeah. somebody is there, they have obesity or they're they're overweight. The the protein intake goals kind of get skewed, and it be it can become a somewhat ridiculous on the amounts of protein that they would make. So. Yeah. You can um, you can do it based on your goal weight, and uh, another approach is to base it on your lean body mass or your fat free mass. But a lot of people don't know what that is, so I, I tend not to make recommendations based on that. But that is another option. So yes, if you're overweight, yeah. you have obesity. What is your goal weight, and then use that as your protein goal. Yep, I love the DEXA scan for finding out that lean. Um, muscle mass, right? And being able to use that number. And I really, um, I really urge my clients to get a DEXA so that they can get a baseline <laughs> as they're going through menopause. Obviously, we want to look at osteoporosis as a risk factor for opening up the doors to other chronic disease and um, bone health. But that's where you would get numbers like that, maybe an in-body scan as well. Um, I want to shift to alcohol because a lot of women, since we're just talking about women, I know men drink as well, but a lot of women have a hard time giving up their cocktails and their wine. It's summer. Um, people are out socializing. They enjoy it. Maybe it's become more of a habit since the pandemic and they can't get rid of it. And the the look on their faces when I suggest to possibly give up alcohol while they're in this zone of achieving their health goals and then seeing down the road if it's something they want to bring in it's just a suggestion and it's a look of horrification on their face they just they can't even you know they don't want to discuss alcohol and fat loss but tell me from your research what you have found well i haven't done any specific research on alcohol intake and body weight loss but what what we know is it's it is not conducive to building muscle in fact can um, it is not favorable to building muscle alcohol and you always hear the term empty calories so it's seven about 7 calories per gram so everything about alcohol is working against you if you if you are trying to lose body fat or even to trying to prevent future body fat gain. So I like that as the goal, um, and I would suggest that with this flexible dieting approach, if we have our maintenance calories, okay, so you know how many calories you can eat, or if you have if you're in a caloric deficit to lose body fat, do you want to use a lot of your calories from alcohol? Or would you rather have, you know, some eggs and a bagel or like actual food 
So I, that's one thing I do like about flexible dieting is you do have your choices and then you get to make choices, but you still have to live within this, this calorie threshold each day to, to make, to reach your goal. If it's fat loss, organic can be maintenance level, but if somebody if they're claiming they're serious about wanting to change their body composition and improve their health, then if they're not willing to negotiate the extent or the amount of alcohol, then, then, then they're not serious. Is, and that would be the conversation I would have, which maybe that's not appropriate, but that, that, that is how I see it. Right. No, I would agree with you. And also drinking alcohol impairs and disrupts our sleep cycle. So we know that when you don't have restorative sleep, it also makes it very difficult to lose fat and put on muscle. So there's, you know, in my book, alcohol um, doesn't really exist, but I know it's a reality for most. So like I said, not a popular conversation to have. What about cheat days? Can, so you were, you were just saying on the flexible diet plan, you can basically eat whatever you want or have the alcohol as long as you stay right at that caloric threshold. So let's say it's 1500 calories. So whatever you wanna eat or drink that gets to 1500 calories, you are still in a caloric deficit and you will reach your goals. But I actually look at it a little differently. Um, to me, it's more about also the quality of the food that we are consuming at that 1500 threshold, not just whatever you want. So tell me a little bit more about that. Because Pete, that's a that's a that's a big concern for people. They don't want to give up their favorite foods. They don't want to give up their French fries on the weekend or their pizza. And once a week, they have you know this and that, or they go on vacation. Yeah. So I'll, I'll talk through how I how I would operate as a as a health coach, not as a researcher. Because as a researcher, we kind of just there's not a lot of. Um, there's not a lot of give and take with, with subjects because it's a study. But if I'm a health coach, um, I kind of like what you said earlier. I would meet somebody where they're at. So if 1,500 calories causes them to lose body weight, and that's a new, this is new. They're going to try and reduce their calories to 1,500, and that's a big step for them. I would start with, let's just see what you just what do you normally eat? Let's not change anything about what you do. Let's just figure out what you like. What, what things do you like? Now, let me give the end game here. The end game here is whether that's two months, eight months, two years, where we have a mostly whole food health, what most people would call healthy, whole food, nutrient-rich diet. But mm -hmm. I'm not, and, and here's another caveat. I'm not, an, I'm not a behavior psychologist. I'm not an exercise psychologist. I just appreciate, I'm not going to try to have you start doing 10,000 steps per day, start resistance training right. and change your diet to this. So to me, it's baby steps. So what foods do you like? A, to me, a reasonable first step is, okay, let's have you meet this 1500 calories with all the foods that you like. So you're not changing anything about your food choices. What we are changing is that you are limiting the amount of them to put you in a caloric deficit. So there would be step one. Now I would actually ask, can we do a little bit of exercise? So whether that's walking, whether that's aerobic, um, eventually resistance training would be ideal. 
And just as a as side note here, aerobic exercise is the best form of exercise to regulate appetite. So if you have your aerobic exercise in order, you actually are going to stop eating when you're full and you're not going to be hungry in between meals. Now, again, people that are sedentary, not only do they not know when to stop eating, they don't have this, this, this shutoff switch, but they also uh -huh. eat in between meals. So both of those get um, drastically improved with physical activity. So uh -huh. I would, we would actually be approaching it from, I don't want to tell you not, you eat what you've been eating. Let's just work on calories, becoming aware of your calories. Let's try to get you moving so we can um, positively regulate your appetite. And now we've got a little, hopefully some buy-in. We haven't, you know, turned their life upside down in a manner that they're not going to be able to, to adhere to this. We already talked about, I think, what an easy strategy is. Okay, let's now try to increase protein. What foods do you naturally eat that are already high in protein? So if, if they, let's say they have four eggs per week, well, can we get that to eight per week? Hey, I have fish once per week. Well, can we get that to twice per week? So again, I love this baby step approach. Let's not drastically change anything. So what protein foods do you naturally eat? Let's include more of them. So that's that would be the, mm -hmm. the approach. And then I, I we can also talk about protein supplements, now introducing resistance training. Um, yeah, yep, for sure. Yeah, that was my, my that's a great segue into my next um, topic here, which is a lot of women like to work out in a fasted state because maybe their workouts are in the morning and um, they don't necessarily want to eat real food in the morning. So I wanted to get your understanding or um, your thoughts on is working out in a fasted state for someone who is looking for fat loss a good idea? And if not, what can they supplement with? So they're still not eating, but maybe they're taking in a supplement that will give them something so it's not a fasted state. So I'm only, I'm only aware of about five, maybe six studies in humans that have investigated aerobic or even resistance exercisers, two of those, doing this in a fasted state. So let's define what that is. Typically, it means you get out of bed and you don't eat anything and you go do your okay. workout. Some people will do that with the belief that they'll, that they'll lose more body fat and relative to fat loss that the research doesn't support that. It doesn't su suggest that you will lose more body fat if you exercise in a fasted state. Does it, does it cause any harm? I don't think so. Could there be other benefits? Possibly. So I, I'm not here to say don't ever do fasted cardio. I'm saying the research suggests that there's not a fat loss benefit from doing so. It's not any worse either. So I always like to say, if it fits your lifestyle, like traditionally I would do fasted cardio in the morning, not because I thought I was burning more fat, just because that worked best for me and my schedule. One, I'm not hungry in the morning. Two, I, at the time I wanted to get my exercise done for the day. So it made sense for me. So yeah, I, I tend to say, I base this, since, since it really doesn't matter relative to fat loss, I would say, what's your lifestyle preference? And let's work within that. Mm -hmm. So there's been some information that I've read by other um, exercise researchers and nutrition researchers um, who have stated that women, because of our hormonal makeup, it's just a bit different for us, that it is a form of stress on our body 
that we shouldn't be putting on our body due to our hormonal fluctuations. And so fasted workouts are not always the best, but I'm like you, there are some days where I get up early and I just go and I don't, I don't want to put anything in my body. And I just want to get to the gym and work out. Um, but as a general rule of thumb, what is a good pre-workout, like a small meal that someone could have an hour or so before a morning workout? Well, typically you would probably not prioritize protein because protein tends to be slow digesting. So that sits in your stomach a little longer. And the idea of exercise is exercise is fueled by carbs and fats. Protein is not really a fueling nutrient. So anything that would be carb or fat based about an hour before would give you, again, quickly digested, enable you to, to have fuel for that workout. So that, that would be ideal. Um, and again, some people can digest protein a little bit faster. Maybe that wouldn't inhibit them. But I look at protein, I call it the adaptive nutrient. So after your workout, it's always mm -hmm. a good idea to get protein because that's what allows you, the exercise was the stimulus that, that it imposed to your body. Protein allows your body to adapt to that stimulus. And protein's unique. Carbs and fats don't have that. Again, right. carbs and fats fuel the workout. Protein doesn't. Protein allows your body to adapt to the workout stimulus in a way that carbs and fats do not. Is it still important to have your post-workout protein within a certain time window, say 45 minutes or so? Yeah, we, we just submitted a study on this, a systematic review and meta-analysis. So historically, the research would suggest that it really doesn't matter. So I'm, I'm going to, I'll tear this for us. Up. So the most important thing is your total daily protein intake. And we both already mentioned a gram per pound gets you all of the benefits that, I, that I, if you're, especially if you're fit, um, you're exercising. So total daily is the, the top of the, of the tier. The next most important thing is to get multiple protein feedings per day. So that's approximately three and as maybe as many as five. And you want to approximately evenly distribute them. So you at 120 pounds, maybe that's 30 in the morning, 30 in the afternoon, 30 early evening, 30 later evening, or 40, 40, 40. So approximately mm -hmm. evenly distributed. Now, the third thing, less important than the first two is it's it's consumption in the proximity to our workouts. And I would suggest that we would get, since we're, and here's how I phrase it, uh, the benefit is, uh, is um, it's, I wouldn't call it trivial. It's, it's not much, but according to our research, there is a slight benefit to getting your protein either around your workout time. So again, I already made the argument, it's the adaptive nutrient. I think it makes sense if you're eating three, four, or five protein feedings per day, it makes sense to get one of them around your workout time, preferably when you're finished. Uh, do you have to run to the refrigerator? Do you have to gulp down a shake? I, no, but to me, it makes sense. There clearly is no harm, and our research would suggest there's a slight benefit to doing so. Yeah, I would agree. Um, I, I've seen the research both ways, but I am famished after my workouts and I 
eat that protein and I feel so good. I, yeah. the times, the times that I have practiced not doing that, I am so famished and I can't focus and get my work done. So to me, it's, um, I also think women who are struggling to get in enough protein, it's a great way to time another protein feeding. Yeah. Just to start doing it around their workouts. Um, what about BCAAs and EAs in terms of supplements? Could that person who insists on working out in a fasted state, so, and I guess I'm going to be a little bit loose on the fasted state, so it's not about burning fat for fuel, but more about not putting food in your stomach because it's too early in the morning. So for that person, is putting some amino acids and electrolytes together in their water bottle at all useful? I think it could be for the individual, and that would be uh, not based on research. That's more on anecdote. I've I've heard I've had more, multiple people tell me they love the taste of their essential amino acids, and it makes them drink more. Um, so it helps with their hydration. And I would say there, there's no harm in that. So I I'm not going to say not do that. Is it offering any type of physiological benefit in terms of building muscle or performance? No, not that I'm aware of, but. If, it, if it's making you feel like there's, you know, not weighing you down, but giving you something in your stomach, I, I believe that's a benefit. Okay, good. So how you were talking about maybe three to five different feedings throughout the day for protein, and you gave some examples of 30 grams or 40 grams. Well, we know that at 30 grams, you're getting two and a half, three grams of leucine in there, which is essential for protein, muscle protein synthesis. Is that why you're saying those numbers? How important is it for especially aging women to really focus on the amount of protein they're eating in one sitting so that they can optimize the muscle protein synthesis? Yeah, you're you're describing something called a, the leucine threshold, which leucine is one amino acid, and it just so happens to be a very important amino acid, like it's an anabolic amino acid, where it literally or figuratively turns on the muscle protein synthetic response in muscle. And if you're getting, if you're getting your protein from what we would say high quality sources, and let's just say animal sources, yeah, about 30 grams will get you approximately two and a half to three grams of leucine for every 30 gram, 30 gram intake. If you're eating vegetable sources of protein or non-animal like pea protein, um, uh, rice protein, soy protein, you might need a little bit more to get the same amount of leucine. Actually, you would need a little bit more. But ultimately, it is the leucine that allows the muscles to turn on this muscle protein synthetic response and allow us to adapt. Now, one thing that's that I want to raise here is some people would say, well, why not just supplement with leucine then? Like, I'll just buy leucine. It's like, no, uh -huh. you need all of the amino acids. It's just uh -huh. that you need leucine to kind of start the process. So all of your protein sources, whether they're animal sourced or non-animal sourced, they give you a, an abundance of non-leucine as well. Okay, great. And one of my, my final topic for you is creatine. Is it for every woman? Is it for every woman who's on a weight loss, fat loss, muscle gain journey? Uh, someone like myself in midlife going through menopause and just maintaining is, in, and if so, 
how do we introduce creatine and use it daily? So the answer is yes. I think everybody should should be taking creatine. I, I give it to my children or when they were children in their fruit smoothies. Uh, my wife is not good about taking it. She should be. Uh, the reason is creatine. Oh, let's just define your body makes about two grams per day. That's not enough to saturate our skeletal muscles. So the goal is you want to saturate your muscle cells, just like you've heard of um, like endurance athletes. They try to get as many carbs into the muscles as possible. Well, we also want to get as much creatine into our muscle cells as possible. And most of the creatine is in our muscle cells, so like 95% of it. So our body's natural production of the does not allow us to saturate muscle cells. So if we take approximately three to five grams of creatine per day, that's basically a teaspoon. Within four weeks, you'll have your muscle cells saturated, and then you'll be able to maintain that with about three grams per day. And the reason why I'm suggesting that everybody take creatine is because one, it's safe and it's highly effective. So it builds muscle mass, increases strength, improves um, high intensity exercise production. And then that's what we know. And that's where the research initiated with sports. Uh -huh. But now we're realizing a host of other health yeah. benefits, just a few like um, post-stroke victims, um, helping them recover from strokes. It's seemingly a great um, preventive um, treatment for concussion. So people mm -hmm. who are taking creatine and they, and they get concussed don't have the damage and are able to recover a lot more. Um, I've, I've seen it in research in autistic children. So there's a lot of other brain health related yeah. benefits of creatine that have nothing to do with performance. And all of the research that we have now suggests that this is done without there. There's the side effects are minimal. The side effects is short term weight gain from water retention. Again, that's very short lived that that tends to level out within a few weeks. Yeah. And I'd like to add to that, that buying creatine gummies is not the way to go that you want to stick with pure creatine monohydrate, right? These gummies, I had a client send me some creatine gummies to see if it was okay. And it's filled with all kinds of glucose and mm. uh, food colorings, right? So it tastes really good, but that's definitely not what I would suggest. Are, are your thoughts the same on that? Yeah, I, I would. Plus how much is actually in that? Right. I, I like to just take a scoop, which I did this morning. I just put it in, in cold water and that's pretty much what I do every day. And it's tasteless, odorless. You don't taste it. It's, it's looks like. So is it something that you have to have pre-workout or is it used as a daily supplement just at any point during the day? Yeah, just, it, it really doesn't matter. I mean, if you had to choose, there's one study that says post-workout's a little better than pre-workout, but if you're taking it daily, it doesn't matter. Your, your body your body doesn't care when it gets it. Yeah. Well, Bill, thank you so much for all of your time and your wisdom and these golden nuggets for my community to take away and implement in their life. Is there anything else that we didn't cover that you'd like to share about midlife women and our, our own health journey, whether it's fat loss or maintaining what we have right now? Uh, I don't think so. I'll, I'll thank you. One, thanks for having me on, but I'm, I'm just, I, I love fitness professionals and I love people who invest to help other people who are not knowledgeable about nutrition and exercise. 
it it bothers me that our nation seemingly is getting sicker and sicker. So anytime somebody's invested in taking care of themselves, exercising, pushing themselves, and then we have a a whole professional um, segment of our society, people like you that, that, that do this. I, I, I love it. So I thank you for, for doing that. Oh, well, thank you for acknowledging health coaches. We're not as well known as everybody else, but we're getting there. Yeah. <laughs> so where can people find you? I, I personally want to say how much I absolutely love your Instagram account and I will put all of your social media onto the show notes, but for everyone listening, what Bill does um, mostly on his Instagram account is he poses a question and then you have to figure it out and he gives you the answer in the um written part of the Instagram post. And I look forward to those, Bill. Don't ever stop. They're great. Some I get right, some I guess, some I get wrong, but I learn from you so much information. I have turned so many of my clients on to you as well as all of my athletic children. They love it. Um, But where else can uh, we find more information about you and what you're putting out there? So the Instagram's a great place. That's Bill Campbell, Mm -hmm. PhD. And then if my website is also billcampbellphd.com and I I offer a research review, it's uh, basically I summarize two studies every month on fat loss and muscle gain. It's solely devoted to that. Um, And I always have a male and, and female professional that help apply the research. So I summarize the research and then I'm bringing in people like you, like health coaches, exercise scientists, physique coaches, where they say, okay, Bill, you you just reviewed the research. Now, here's some ideas or here's how we implement this in our real clients or how we take this. Or maybe th- we don't think this works, even though the research said this. Mm-hmm. So for people that are pretty serious about their fitness and nutrition or for, for professionals that help people with weight loss, that's this a service that I provide. Great. Great. Well, thank you again so much for all of your time. It was an absolute pleasure speaking with you about this topic. It's going to help so many people. Yeah. Thank you very much for the opportunity. All right. Thanks everyone. Thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Lifestyle changes can be hard and overwhelming to make. By building your support team of functional medicine doctors, therapists, and health coaches, you can reach your optimal health goals. Be sure to check out my other podcasts. Until we meet again, stay healthy.